dive back into the book this week with EFS 15, Cataclysms. We discuss what would a magnetic pole reversal look like, external influences and volcanoes, a range of things in this episode. And we had Grub join us as a watcher, I suppose you could call him, to just give us a little bit of an insight. I don't know what we're going to, what his official name is yet. We're still working on that. We're still in the process. And apologies for some of the clunky nature of trying to navigate that in this episode. The EFS stuff is really cool and I enjoy doing it and we'll continue the book. We've got to get it done because there's another four books that we want to do already. And we will review the process as to how we did it this time. It's probably been a bit long. However, it's also been a cool journey as well. And thank you for those that have been along the journey with us. That's enough out of me. Uh, remember, we're on Patreon, Unlocking the Code. You want to swing a couple of bucks our way, that'd be awesome. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Unlocking the Code. I don't know what the music's going to be with this one. I'll figure it out. Enjoy it. Look after yourselves. Be kind. Be cool. Stay safe. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. We went from spitting jam stuff, 50 fans in a little cramped room, a shoebox he couldn't fit, a shoe in a tour, and Switzerland with my man in the minivan, being the man of the minican, happening in minimum. I've seen bodies that I trust in a way, cause money can't buy you love, but it can earn you hate, and none of you came from fuck to the movement, we're large, now every crew is making music, every dude has got bars, now every half ass bar fly up in the bar once you said about spitting about the dark and the hard times, on the fight and for the crowds and the such, when we encountered in the pal who had been down on his line It's some volleys pushing trolleys eating soup from the tent My girls are golly man, these polys ain't improving a thing We'll swap your wallies for some volleys, swap your soup for some wings And fly with us, we light it up and it's a beautiful day The days of Walkmans and starter hats The open mic nights, master in the auto rap We man-made underground like an artifact We don't need to worry when the market crash I'm from the bottom, brought up my new Scotland Planted all my seeds, watered them and watch it blossom Then they try to tell me over time we'd be forgotten Rotten, thinking that you're gonna keep me boxed in Nonsense, hilltop and class rock till you nod and nod And you can walk in my shoes but never fit in my jeans I do this with no option till my body's old and rotten and exhausted Keep it going cause I'm living when it comes to picture painting, we might be the illustrated with the visuals illustrated. That's ill communication. Therapy for life without the rehabilitation. Keep waiting, I'm about to blow up.
hardship Carving out apostles a hardship for the traveler <laughs> Said the rap's a facade, you never manage it in these parts Guess it's the scars that give us character We misfits and slackers Set risk kids or hackers with the wish list Sick of doing six shifts of knackers From listeners to rappers, prestigious to hapless I don't need a gift to know that this shit is backwards Went down officially, another visionary Will light the flame, write their name in their sweat, blood and infamy It's got a symphony, fuck the industry Let them come, we're the ones carving history So we rhyme for the hurting poor, hard working for International herd, applaud the local suburban toy All gave a purpose for the wrong and the curtains draw Furthermore, ask yourself what you're searching for Follow me to a place I like to go Line of notes, a signpost to find out which lies below Born in 88, so I came in late To find for the first time in life I felt right at home Through the growing pains and hostile takeovers People trying to put us down like Beethoven We stayed strong and remained focused Till they had no other choice but to stand up and take notice Never thought what I wrote on the page back in the day Would ever have me catching a plane or rapping up on the stage Staring out at the crowd in amazement Thinking back on the days when we were confined to the limitations of the basement The sub to raining and kids became the main event I pay respect to those who spent days laying foundations Countdown to detonation Mate, how you going? We're back again. I'm well, my friend. How are you? EFS 15. We're punching them out. Are we? Have we got the right number uh, this oh, time? Oh, look, I don't know. It could be 15. I'm the not. I'm, next I'm, EFS. I'm, the next EFS. <laughs> However, this time, from the depths of the Blue Mountains, surrounded by magnets in a in a bath of spinning mercury, is Grub. He's going to come. He's going to give us a hand this tonight, aren't you, mate? How are you, Grub? From the dark recesses of your mind. Yeah. Sassy, <laughs> sassy, leave leave the neighbors alone. <laughs> Oi, put them down. They're, oh, they're what, are mate. Yeah. Fucking, what are you talking about? <laughs> How are you, mate? All right, yeah, been good, good, very good. Been uh, remodeling your cocoon, my friend. Yeah, uh, yeah, I gotta keep waving these magnets, man. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I reached the hurts that's separating my, se- my cells, man. Um. <laughs> Yeah, mate. Look, I thought this would just be a bit of fun. I thought you, uh, you know, you wanted to. We, we wanted to do a tripod anyway, and we we basically just recorded one before we turned the mics on or before we said go. However, uh, and we've got a we've got an episode that is going to be a mind bender coming up where we want to talk about some stuff, which we won't start now. However, we just thought you know a bit of an ad, you know, tonight. So what we're going to do, we'll do an article, and then we will jump straight into the book, and then Grub, you can just. You know, we've got the chat up, so if you want to, you know, say something or you've got something for, for us to have a look at, just let us know and we'll engage you from there, mate. And we'll just see how it flows. Sweet. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, this is obviously a new thing for us and we're just experimenting. Could be some, it'll be a bit of fun, though. So we'll just get started, eh, boys? Let's hook in. All right. Straight into the Straight in. Straight okay. Into the article, my friend. So. Five ancient cities. Five ancient cities. Five five legendary, legendary lost cities that have never been found. So I'll do the first bit, mate, and then I'll hand it over. So this, the, do we have an, from Joanna Gillen, 
three o'clock in the afternoon, March 2021. Okay. The story of Atlantis is one of the most renowned and enduring tales of a lost city, said to have been swallowed up by the sea and lost forever. Yeah, because of isostatic depression. We won't start that now. Yet the story of Atlantis is not unique, as other cultures have similar legends of land masses and cities that have disappeared under the waves, been lost beneath the desert sands or buried beneath centuries of vegetation. From the ancient homeland of the Aztecs to jungle cities of gold and riches, we examine five legendary lost cities that have never been found. What have we got here? I oh, didn't give us a name there. I thought I was going to give us a name. Since Europeans first arrived in the New World, there have been stories of a legendary jungle city of gold, some pro- sometimes referred to as El Dorado, which is the gold repository in America. Isn't that called it? Isn't El Dorado? Isn't that what they call the gold repository in America? Uh, Spanish conquistadors. We'll, yes. we'll say yes. Oh, there you go, Grub. Is that is that the gold repository in America? <laughs> Spanish conquistador uh, Francisco de Orellana. Orellana? was the first to venture along the Rio Negro in search of this fabled city. In 1925, at the age of 58, explorer Percy Fawcett headed into the jungles of Brazil to find a mysterious lost city he called Z. Didn't we cover Percy Fawcett in an early EFS episode, I think? Because it was his son. His son made it out, and then they went and trying to find him and stuff. I think we did. He and his team would vanish without a trace, and the story would turn out to be one of the biggest news stories of the day. Despite countless rescue missions, Fawcett was never found. We covered that earlier. Yeah. Um, in 1906, the Royal Geographical Society, a British organisation that sponsors scientific expeditions, invited Fawcett to survey part of the frontier between Brazil and Bolivia. He spent 18 months in the Mato Grosso area and it was during his various expeditions that Fawcett became obsessed with the idea of lost civilizations in this area. In 1920, Fawcett came across a document in the National Library of Rio de Janeiro called Manuscript 512. It was written by a Portuguese explorer in 1753 who claimed to have found a walled city deep in the Mato Grosso region of the Amazon rainforest reminiscent of ancient Greece. The manuscript described a lost silver-laden city with multi-storey buildings, soaring stone arches, wide streets leading down towards the lake, on which the explorer had seen two white Indians in a canoe. Fawcett called this city the Lost City of Z. In 1921, Fawcett set out on his first of many expeditions to find the Lost City of Z, but his team were frequently hindered by the hardships of the jungle, dangerous animals and rampant diseases. Yeah, because remember, Fawcett was paid by the Geographical Society and the Rockefellers. Remember, he just mapped a country. Just remember that? He just walked over a mountain range. Yeah, I'll, Yeah. I'll, I'll draw the line. Yeah, I mean, how yes, tough are you? Yes, you know yes, what I mean? yes, yes, yes. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Percy's final search for Z culminated in his complete disappearance. In April 1925, he attempted one last time to find Z, this time better equipped uh, Fort Knox, not El Dorado. Yeah, thanks, mate. Look at that. Good on you, grub. Appreciate that. Uh, this time better equipped and financed by newspapers and societies, including the Royal Geographic Society and the Rockefellers. The rock- Why did the Bloody Rockefellers and everything. In his final letter, see, do you know what happened? He did find it, and the Rockefellers know where it is. That's what happened, right? Just don't tell them that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They know. Just add it. We'll send in team. Yeah, we'll we'll take down all the the precious metals, mm. and we'll just put it in our vault. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we hope to get through this region in a few days. You need have no fear of any failure. Yeah, that was the last time we ever heard of him. Yeah, that's right, because he sent a message to his wife and his son went looking for him. 
By force, its lost city of Z has never been found. Numerous ancient cities and remains of religious sites have been uncovered in recent years in the jungles of Guatemala, Brazil, Bolivia, and Honduras. With the advent of new scanning technology, LIDAR, it is possible that an ancient city that spurred the legends of Z may one day be found. Uh, I'll do Atslan and I'll pass it over, mate, if you want to do two and yeah, we'll see if sure we go. Sure thing, chicken wing. See, I would have, I'm going to say initially that Atslan, I thought, was Atlantis. But anyway, we'll see what it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lost city of Atslan, legendary homeland of the Aztecs. The Aztec people of Mexico created one of the most powerful empires in the ancient Americas. While much is known about the empire located where today's Mexico City can be found, less is known about the very start of the Aztec culture. Many consider the missing island of Atslan to be the ancient homeland where the Aztec people began to form as a civilization prior to their migration to the Valley of Mexico. Some believe it is a mythical land similar to Atlantis or Camelot, which will live in live, live on through legend but will never be found in physical existence. Others believe it to be a true physical location that will someday be identified. Searches for the land of Atslan have spanned from western Mexico all the way to the deserts of Utah in hopes of finding a legendary island. However, these searches have been fruitless as the location existed with Aztlan remain a mystery. I would say, and just from from the Aztec stuff that I've researched, you would say Aztlan was Atlantis, right? Because, I mean, if you think about what's the story, right? The story goes that they are the oh, the survivors of the cataclysm yeah, and they went to Mexico and yeah. used the technology. So it makes sense that you'd have the same sort of uh, creation story, mm the dream time story mm. as, as they come from a, another land. Yeah. And Atslan is also real close. It to sounds a bit you know like, I mean? you know, Atlantis. Exactly. It's got, it's got that ring to it. Yeah. You can draw the, the mm. similarities there. Mm. Mm. No, just go down. Yeah. Oh, nice. oh, hang on. I'm not done yet. Oh, you're still on Aslan. Yeah. The formation of the civilization at Atla- Atslan comes from legend. According to Nah. A Hatul legend, there are seven tribes, seven, seven sisters, that once lived at Chico Motztok, the place of the seven caves. With the seven caves, where did they go hmm. to survive the cataclysm? These tribes represented the seven Nahua groups, Akolhua, Chalca, Mexica, Tepanica, Tiahuica, Tiaxcalan, and Zocobilca. Different sources provide variations on the names of the seven groups. The seven groups, being of similar linguistic linguistic groups, left their respective caves and settled as one group near Adsland. So why were they in the cave? You know what I mean? Mm. Or is the cave just representative? Like you, you were drawing the the similarity, like seven, seven sisters. sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is the cave just representative of space? Of, of space? The, yeah. Of the Pleiades. Of mm. it's a It's a thing. Ego, the word Atslan means to the land to the north, the land whence we the Aztecs came. So theoretically, Atlantis was in the northern hemisphere. In the north well, if you were Mexico, so Southern America, uh Atlantis was in between the Azores in the Azores on the Azores plateau between Spain and America. Mm-hmm. That's to the north of exactly. where they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. hundred uh, percent it is. Yeah. 
who then, so it is said that eventually the people who inhabited Aztlan became known as the Aztecs, who then migrated from Aztlan to the Valley of Mexico. They escaped. The Aztec migration from Aztlan to Teochitlan is a very important piece of Aztec history. It began on May 24, 1064, which was the first Aztec solar year. It's interesting. Well, 1064, wasn't it 1066 when the Vikings fucking reinvaded? That, that's, that's Camelot. Yeah. 1066 is the battle. For England, yeah, uh, oh, the the Danes the, and the uh, yeah, exactly the Vikings, the, the Vikings, the versus or the Saxons, which are from the north, they're mm. Viking. Yeah, but the Saxons, the Danes, and the Vikings. All, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. the Battle of Britain, sort of thing. For basically, that that's when time. they that's when they invaded mm. properly. To this day, <clears throat> well, I mean, there's a big gap there as well. We don't really know what happened in 1064, like. And anyone that says they do is lying, right? Mm. No one really knows. The, the historical record that we have from that time is scratchy at best. Yeah. To this day, the actual existence of an island known as Atslan has not been confirmed. Many have searched for the land in hopes of having a better understanding of where the Absecs came from and perhaps a better understanding of the ancient Mexican history. However, like the other lost city, it's not clear whether Atslan will ever be found. That's probably it, mate, I think. There you go. The land of the lioness. Hmm. The lost land of Lioness, Lionessi, Leon, Leonessi, Leonessi. Leonessi? Mm. I'm not mm. sure. God, I wish I knew more. Leg- legendary city on the bottom of the sea. Another one. I haven't heard this one. In Arthurian legend, let's just go with Lioness, is the home country of Tristan from the legendary story of Tristan and Isiolt. The mythical land of Lioness is now referred to as the lost land of Lioness, as it is ultimately said to have sunk into the sea. However, the legendary tale of Tristan and Isiolt shows that Lioness is known for more than sinking into the ocean, and that it had a legendary presence while it remained above ground. While Lioness is mostly referred to in stories of legend and myth, uh, Hang on a second. I need. I just need to bring the chat up because. Um, oh yeah, grubs into it. Grubs into it. What are you saying he's, there, mate? Just, just speak up, bud. What are you doing there? So the ATL words are yeah, grub. Just chime in over these last couple of things you've thrown up, mate. Give us a little rundown. Yeah, I can't remember what I wrote. Hang on. Nah. <laughs> yeah, just drag it up. Drag it up here. Hang on. Oh, oh here we go. It all went nuts. Yeah, hang, hang on. on. There you go. The oh, Atl right. words, the yep. Atl words, or ATL, uh, only found in the Mexico and the Almec areas yep. in the Americas. So any, any word with Atl or Atl Atl or Atlantis, yep. that only comes from the Central America area. Yep. And it was the Battle of Hastings by the Normans. That's and the, Vikings, the one. King William. Yeah, King William. Norman. 1066. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. which Normans is North men north men yeah, yeah. yes which it is, was yeah which is the yeah. vikings that moved into france yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. they come down from the north yeah there you go that's good yeah. thanks yeah. thanks for the update grub you're a bloody legend yeah we just gotta we just gotta refine the uh refine the system yeah we've got to refine the system to because we're reading from a full screen we've got to make oh uh, do you know what i yeah i could i should have i know what i can do but we'd have to stop so We'll do it next time. Yeah. This is what I can do. This is learning. We're learning, learning on the fly. I can split the screens. 
I can turn uh, the laptop around and make it two screens. Gotcha. Right? Then we could have the chat. And then we can have the there. chat up on one screen. Giddy up. Yeah. Now we're talking. We're moving. Yeah. Moving ahead. All right. All right. Um, where was I? Now I've completely lost uh, where I was. Is known for more than sinking into the ocean? Up a bit. Uh, yeah, and that is legendary presence, presence while remained above ground. While Lioness is mostly referred to in stories as legend and myth, there is some belief that it represents a very real city that sunk into the sea many years ago. With such a legendary location, it can be difficult to ascertain where the legend ends and the reality begins. There are some variations in the legends that surround the sinking of the land. Prior to its sinking, Lioness would have been quite large, containing 140 villages and churches. Lioness is said to have disappeared on November 11th, 1099, although some tales use the year 1089, and some date back to the 6th century. Very suddenly, the land was flooded by the sea, entire villages were swallowed, and the people and animals of the drowned area, once it was covered in water, the land never re-emerged. While the Arthurian tales are legendary, there is some belief that Lioness was once a very real place attached to the to the Silly Isles in Cornwall, England. Oh, sorry, Cornwall, England. Evidence shows that the sea levels were considerably lower in the past, so it was very possible that in an area that once contained a human settlement above ground is now beneath the sea level. Indeed, fishermen near the Silly Isles tell tales of retrieving pieces of buildings and other structures from their fishing nets. These stories have never been substantiated and are viewed by some as tall tales. From the legendary tales of Tristan and Isilt, to Arthur's final battle with Mordred, to the stories of a city being swallowed by the sea, the tales of Lioness invoke a, last, a vast array of thoughts and emotions by those who wish to know more about the legendary city and who like to believe that its legendary tales are founded upon a very real lost city. Yes, Triff, do you have I, some input, my I, friend? I, I see your finger working I, overtime I, over there. Well, I wanted to ask Grub to see anything uh, global warming, anything happened around 1100, right? Because if we're talking about... Well, so, I've, so it was either isostatic depression that yep. made me think about it, right? Yep. See, the thing about Arthur, the Arthur legend... What's the other thing that's common with Arthur and Mordred? Magic, mm -hmm. right? Magical weapons, energy weapons, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. What if Arthur is actually prior to the yeah. cataclysm, right? What if that's a story that's actually what if, stood the what test if, of time? What if Arthur is a tale that is, yeah, stood the test of time? Or what if, what if like Arthur was a fucking Atlantean survivor? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, this is the battle of the Atlantean survivors in England. Yeah. As opposed to the other survivors went to Mexico. Yeah. Other survivors went to Egypt. Boom. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And what if right. it's not 1099? What if it's 11,000 years ago with the second water pulse? Well, 1099, that makes kind of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Into like 10,990 years ago. Exactly. Not 1099. Not 1099, yeah. 11,000 years ago. <laughs> exactly. In that thousand year period. Round, yeah. Rounded up. Boom. 11,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Here Quite we go. Possible. So the optimum of the medieval climatic anomaly was a time of warm climate lasted 950 to 1250. Well, there you go. So there could have been, you know, the ice caps could have melted into a 
degree during that period and swallowed a city, maybe. Yeah. I mean... But but see, as soon as I hear sea level rising, I'm going straight back to flood myth. Yeah. You know, the, the worldwide flood myth that, that permeates through every fucking mm. ancient religion around the world. Yeah. Sort of thing. Oh, that's... Oh, that's where I'd go to straight away. See, that's the thing. So the optimum of the medieval climatic anomaly, climatic anomaly was a time of warm climate in the North Atlantic. See, the timeline fits there as well. But see, both things could be true as well. How long? You're right. Yes. yes. So I mean, let's let's not just eliminate one thing for the sake of the other. Yeah, that's but very also, mainstream of us. But also, right. The other stories, when you go back to medieval times, there's stories of UAPs and UFOs, like things arriving in the in the sky and all these sorts of things. Who's to say that the tech that was left over from the ancient advanced civilization, well, do we still have it now? There's a question, right? So theoretically, a couple apparently of the UAPs, apparently do. we do. A couple of the UAPs, get they get delivered or they get found in ancient sites and you yeah. hit the button in and they still work. Digs. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the tech still works because it feeds off the ether. Don't start. Um, however, yeah. Yeah. All no, things I'm, could be true. That's right. All things could be true. Mm. And I think they, yeah. And they could, they could lead back to a late, uh, earlier date mm. or maybe there was a second coming. Yeah. In that area. But let's not forget that the Azores is only just like, it's only around the corner. South west of fucking england so, yeah, yeah yeah so they could have their very own atlantis um myth sort of thing like lioness is atlantis and uh, the survivors got to to england and and this is the the story that was passed that down was continuing on yeah and turned into what it is so. mm. and and those those people like those historians have connected this story to um, an event that has occurred in 1066. Yeah. Or oh, they're just putting it in a timeline. That's but, it. They've yeah. just connected it to certain characters that do seem to play out in certain places that seem to play out. Mm. Because like the Normans invading, yada, yada, it kind of explained it everything, explained everything that happened. But it, the timeline's way out. The timeline, they've attached it to a time in 1066 mm. instead of, 11,000 years ago, because it, it's just a tale that's permeated down through time. Mm, repeated and repeated. Yeah. Depending on what goes on. Yeah. And you would think, okay, here's another idea as well, that the technology, because you don't have any way to maintain it, would begin to fail over the course of time, right? So mm -hmm. down to the point where you've got a magical sword left. You know what I mean? Like, which is the tale of art. Yeah, there's one artifact left. Yeah. Yeah. That still works for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Take us to El Dorado, mate. All right. The Lost City of Gold. Ah. Oh, hang on a second. I just need... Bless you. Oh, that was coming from around the corner. You've been, you've been fighting that for a minute, haven't you? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For hundreds of years, treasure hunters and historians alike have searched for El Dorado, the lost city of gold. The idea of a city filled with gold and other riches has, has a natural appeal, drawing the attention of individuals from all over the world in hopes of discovering the ultimate treasure. 
and an ancient wonder. In spite of numerous expeditions around all of Latin America, the city of gold remains a legend with no physical evidence to substantiate its existence. Yeah, because Indiana Jones found it, man, and it, it sunk beneath the jungles, dude. I watched, I saw the movie, man. That's it. <laughs> he, he crossed He crossed the seal with the... <laughs> with the with, crystal skull. With, well, and, well and, she did. She, she the, took the... Whatever what she, was it called? What the, the cup of Christ? The Holy Grail. The Holy Grail. She yeah. crossed the seal, man. Indy, we can take it. Right. <laughs> it could be ours. The origins of El Dorado come from legendary tales of the Muisca tribe. Following two migrations, one in 1270 BC and one in 800 and 500 BC, the Muisca tribe occupied the Cundinamarca and Boyaca areas of Colombia. According to legend, as written by Juan Rodriguez Frails, El Can. Carnero, I nearly said Camino then, mm. El Carnero, the Muisca practiced a ritual for every newly appointed king that involved gold dust and other precious treasures. When a new leader was appointed, many rituals would take place before he took his role as king. During one of these rituals, the new king would be brought to Lake Guadavida, where he would be stripped naked covered in honey, and thrown to the lesbians. No, and covered in gold <laughs> dust. He would be placed upon a highly decorated raft along with his attendants and piles of gold and precious stones. The raft would be sent out to the center of the lake where the king would wash the gold dust from his body. As his attendants would throw the pieces of gold and precious stones into the lake, this ritual was intended as a sacrifice to the Muisca's god. To the Muisca, El Dorado was not a city, but the king at the center of this ritual, so also called the Gilded One. While El Dorado is meant to refer to the Gilded One, the name has now become synonymous with the lost city of gold and any other place where one can quickly obtain wealth. In 1545, conquistadors Lazaro Fonte and Hernando Hernan Perez de Quesada, wow, that name just keeps on going, attempted to drain Lake Guaravida as they did so. They found gold along its shores, fueling their suspicion that the lake contained a treasure of riches. They worked for three months with workers forming a bucket chain, <laughs> but they were unable to drain the lake sufficient, su sufficiently to reach any treasures deep within the lake. In 1580, another attempt to drain the lake was made by business entrepreneur Antonio de Sepulveda. Once again, various pieces of gold were found along the shores, but the treasure at the depths of the lake remained concealed. Other searches were conducted on Lake Guadavida, with estimates that the lake could contain up to $300 million in gold. With no luck in finding the treasures, all searches came to a halt when the Colombian government declared the lake a protected area in 1965. After the Sismonian came down and said, "We're just going to take this." We over. we we sent <laughs> divers in. We took. We've collected all the gold. Um, there's nothing to see here. Yeah. Nonetheless, the search for El Dorado continues, even without the ability to search Lake Guadavita. The legends of the Muisca tribe, the Gilded One, and their ritualistic sacrifice of treasures has transformed over time 
into today's tale of El Dorado, the lost city of gold. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I like that explanation. I like that that explanation. It could be the lake and it's just... I mean, there's other. I was trying to think of the other. Um, there was other religions back then that they painted them in gold. I mean, and I like the wording at the start there. It's quite a natural attraction. Why? Why is it a natural attraction for us to be attracted to that yellow metal? It's a weird thing, man. It's a weird thing. Well, Our obsession with gold. It's very stable. It's constant. Yeah. It's very stable, and it's produced naturally. Mm-hmm. And so probably... I, I I like that as part of the explanation, mm-hmm. but there's there's also prettier, like there's prettier metals out, there. prettier stones as well. Like, exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Um, all right, that's last one, and then we'll jump into the book. Um, the lost desert cities of Dubai: the hidden history. That looks like some polygonal masonry, boys. I don't know about you. Loose. It's not great polygonal masonry, but it's not bad either. Uh, and what's that? That's two rams facing towards each other. They look like ibex. Ibex I'm with say. two humans. Yeah, in the middle. Mm. Just throw up the. Just have a gaze at the chat just quickly. Pull that up just a second. Oh, he's lost oh, it. No, he's lost it. it, in the task it no. Hey, they're listening. I've been oh, listening. Oh, you've been oh, listening. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, no, right. I was just double checking the chat to make sure because we couldn't see any of the words, just to make sure we could yeah. um see. Oh it. yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. Put any tips. Oh yeah, if up I do, there, if I do that, we're going to be able to see it, right? If we do that, we're going to be see it on the edge there. Well, um, if about, I if I about, say something now, that, yeah, that those those symbols at the top there are being used in uh, even in some, like ancient yeah. pre pre Samaria. Look, I mean, it's two ibex. things facing each other. The ibex, it's it's potentially a loose god self icon, um, mm-hmm. or you know, they are headless. Yeah, they look headless. Huh? They do look Two headless, right? Um, yeah, I, I did sort of initially thought god self because I mean, you've got the the arch there and that as well. So, yeah, but the ibex and that, I mean, it is um, also what is that three D relief carving too, which is more difficult than yeah. Well, that whole stone oh, actually has, right. has yeah. been carved yeah. down, so yeah, yeah. it's actually. Embossed, mm. standing out. Mm. Yeah, so mm. they've carved that whole stone to face. Yeah, that's not easy, is it? Mm. No, that's right. That's the same as um, Gebekli Tepe. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Dubai cultivates an ultra modern image of dazzling architecture and effortless wealth, yet its deserts conceal forgotten cities and a hidden history which reveal how its early inhabitants adapted and overcame dramatic past climate change. One of the most famous lost cities of Arabia, tantalizingly so because historians have known it existed from written records but simply could not find it, is the medieval city of Julfar, home to the legendary Arabian seafarer Ahmed ibn Majid, as well as allegedly to the fictional Sinbad the sailor. Julfar thrived for a thousand years before falling into ruin and disappearing from human memory for almost two centuries. Unlike other desert cities, Julfa was a thriving port, in fact, the hub of southern Gulf Arabic trade in the Middle Ages. Julfa was known to be somewhere on the Persian Gulf, north of Dubai, uh, but the actual site was only found... See, that's the problem, this chat thing. Need the two screens, man. Um, oh! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, just put it down like I had it before. Like, yeah, down up yeah. And just read from the top of the screen. Yeah. Um... 
Jolfo was known to be somewhere on the Persian Gulf Coast north of Divide, but the actual site was only found by archaeologists in the 1960s. The earliest signs of settlement found on the site date from the 6th century, by which time its inhabitants were already trading as far afield as India and the Far East on a routine basis. The 10th, there you go, look at that, the 10th to 14th, that's the 10th century. There's, there's, a, there's an echo there, eh? That's the third time we've heard it in that article. Um, we're a golden age. And when did that climatic thing, that went to 1250, I think it, it said there. So there you go. Because, I mean, this is the whole point, not that we, I'm not going to get into climate change right now, but the, 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 the earth gets warmer, it's actually a more productive time for humanity. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, with Arab navigators routinely traveling halfway around the world, Arabs had sailed into European waters long before Europeans succeeded in navigating through the Indian Ocean and into, into the Persian Gulf. For instance, uh, oh, for instance, as the main base for these voyages and trade, Julfa was the largest and most important city in the southern Gulf for over a thousand years. Arab merchants routinely made the mammoth 18-month sea voyage as far as China and traded almost everything imaginable. Such a valuable commercial centre attracted the constant attention from rival powers, though. The Portuguese took control in the 16th century, which, which time Jolfa was a substantial city of around 70,000 people. A century later, the Persians seized it, only to lose it in 1750 to the, to the Qasim tribe from Sharjah, who established themselves next door at Ras al-Khaimah, which they continue to rule to this day, leaving the old Jafar to gradually decay until its ruins became forgotten almost amongst the coastal sand dunes. Today, most of Julfar, in all likelihood, remains still hidden beneath the sprawling dunes of Ras al-Khaimah, courtesy of David Miller. What an article. That's, Again, that was that's really like good. EFS in itself. I know. I know. <laughs> that was really good because I hadn't heard of a couple of those. Uh, that was that was a good little article. And and I think that, I think the authors was purposely tying a lot of those ones together around that mm. date mm. as well. I think that's why some of these exist there. I think he's pointing at something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, because he was there was that echo of that 10, 10, you know, that basically somewhere years. around 1050 to eleven hundred. BC stuff happened. There was a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, the the world shifted. Yeah. Um, did you want to add anything, Grub, before we jump into the book, mate? Are you okay? Uh, yeah, I was just uh, looking at the um, at the sea sea level rise. Oh, and yeah. Around that. I think time. I found. Yeah, I found something about the uh, the end of the mini ice age that we had. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there was about. A foot, give or take half a foot to a foot, or about twenty, you know, twenty-five centimeter rise in sea level, and so that was, was that, from the mini ice age. Was that so, the the medieval cold period, like the dark ages sort of thing? The end of June, that or the end of the mini yeah, but ice? Didn't age? we do that last time? Wasn't that five thirty-six or whatever it is? That's the that was the the five the two years without sun or whatever it was. You, there not, was not only yeah, that, there was the there was dark a, ages yeah. and the warming period that sent the Vikings around that's the it. 900 then, to 1200 it, and then it went cold again. Yep. Uh, but it wasn't that cold. It was, it was called the medieval cooling period. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I think that was about the 1500 or so. And then I think it went up a little bit between 16 to seven to the, to the late 1700s. And then it went back down into the mini the mini ice age. Yeah, because there was a cooling in the 1700s too, wasn't there? Yeah. 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 And then when it rose from that, uh, there was uh, about 25 centimeter rise in sea levels. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, 
25 centimetres isn't enough to bury an island, though. No, but it might shift the coast uh, like a oh, – if they're on a really yeah, flat yeah, coastline, yeah. that really water would have gone, you know. Yeah. 100%. Ma- maybe, plus, maybe. Plus, Could have been, where, yeah. plus, where did that that water come from to rise that sea level by 25 centimetres? Yeah. And where did they depression. measure that? And where did they measure that too, by the way, that it was 25 mm, centimetres? Yeah. So, so like, if you were to get a sea level rise of 25 centimetres, then you get isostatic depression. Because wherever that glacier melted to provide that ice, mm-hmm. it's then lighter. And then maybe the Silly Isles um, of Orkney or whatever the fuck they were above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of what's the name? Maybe that area sunk a little bit too. So you got the combined overall measurement. Because mm. um, There was that Doggerland there too. Yeah, Doggerland yes. was in between exactly. France and England as well, yeah. And yeah, that was a huge tidal wave that could have like well, messed think, up more I, than I, just that. I think Doggerland was probably a, a victim of the cataclysm, I would say. Um but it's interesting, you know what I mean? Like how many cataclysms of what's what happened between, you know, okay, so 12,800 to 11,600, they're the two big ones. What many ones have occurred that we have no historical record with for? more localized, yeah, effects. localized stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, mate, that was uh, cool, yeah. that was really good, that was really good, that was a bit bigger than I thought. However, we finally get into the book, uh, and we ended talking about dinosaurs and dragons. That was a fun episode, I really enjoyed that. It was, uh, and uh, so we're going to the flipping of the mill. How might cataclysms occur? This is this is a ball air alleys, isn't it? Uh, so how might such, so hang on, the last sentence was, as repellent as this conclusion may be for some people when combined and really looked at, the fossil, geological, anthropo- anthropological and genetic evidence all say that it is indeed so, the fact that we live with dinosaurs. The only other possibility comes from the quantum world, time travel, which we're not going to start on that either, boys. Okay, we'll just leave that alone. <laughs> I'll pull it on that. Yeah, no, don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't start anyway. Um, the flipping of the mill. So how might such cataclysms occur? The theories of celestial impacts and polar reversals have always been a popular belief. And it's interesting, again, so we see this, uh, he wrote this in 06. The advancement in 16 years, um, like the polar reversals, that's not a popular belief anymore. Like that's not, that's, it's scientific. It's Yeah, it's been studied in sediments and ice cores. And And tree rings and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know from the geological evidence still visible on Mars and from the Comet Levy Shoemaker 9 that impacts are an absolute fact. But it is really possible is it really possible for the Earth to turn over on its axis? It is a question that has been argued and debated for many years. But what are the actual facts? What if he, what's he going to do? Is he going to go uh, crustal displacement? I'm, I'm interested to see where he goes. Yeah. The phenomenon of reverse polarity or magnetic, magnetic polar reversal where the North becomes South and vice versa is actually now a well-established scientific fact. Through geological studies, we've been able to determine the original magnetic orientation of certain ore base rocks and rock formations and what changes have occurred to them in the past. I love how Max does that to us sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like he's in the room with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we bring out and then the next, yeah. next, next paragraph, he tells us that he already knows that. These studies have shown that over the course of the Earth's lifetime, reversals in magnetic polarity have actually happened quite often and seem to have occurred on some kind of regular basis. In fact, almost too often for comfort. Why this gives us some cause for alarm is the fact that the next polar reversal is actually quite now is actually now long overdue. Well, I mean, as we know, 
the since you know the pole the north pole is marching somewhere into alaska isn't it like it's it's i'm not up to date with i'm it. pretty sure it's it was sort of doing a bit of a squiggle but it's yeah. still working its way south and then the south pole is moving away from australia underneath the planet yeah okay yep you know because it's going like it's so going the like opposite that. Side. yeah the opposite side yeah yeah um that might be one for you grub where's the magnetic poles at the moment man the south and north magnetic poles uh the former reversal of the planet's magnetic poles, while the latter is a full geographical flip of the Earth on its axis. It is uncertain whether both events occur in tandem, but it is believed by many experts that they are too intrinsically linked in some way. Um, polar wandering 90 degree or so are more regular. Okay. Yeah. So they'll move 90, but they won't move a full, a full 180. 180. Yeah. Or three. Flip. Yeah. Or three. Well, once I, I imagine once it gets past a certain point, they flip. Um, because the, you know, oops. yeah. Uh, intrinsically linked in some way. A magnetic polar reversal would be a relatively benign event when compared to a geological polar reversal. Because, I mean, if you, I mean, what a geological polar reversal is, the whole Earth flipping on its head, you know well, what you, I mean? You've like, got to think about that's, the... That's pretty crazy stuff. You've got to think about the crustal upheaval yeah, yeah, yeah. that would happen in a in a physical flipping of continents around. Like, yeah. if, if, we, if we're going to run with the crust mantle situation... Yeah, they're moving on the magma, so is it, that what it, we're yeah, saying? Yeah, it basically flips over. That would be... So cataclysmic as compared to to uh, magnetic polar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd, like a full geological flip, but that's that's something to like. That'd be nothing would be the same again if that happened. Exactly. Right. You, you, you there would be no constant because no. everything would be thrown on its head. Hundred percent. Everything. Well, not only that, you've got to consider if you've got a a ball spinning in one direction, and then the whole crust Goes, of whoa. that slips. You got to think about like the torsional forces that would be. You'd almost think that's planet breaking. Well, well you you've, you've seen you've seen the whole, the old um, uh, used to be at like the like science at the science center sort of thing, and you had like a bicycle wheel that you hold, mm. and you stand on a lazy Susan, right, and you spin that wheel, and then as you turn that, try and turn that wheel against the centrifugal force, yeah. it'll actually cause you to rotate around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence, it's kind of how a um, gyroscope works. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's got a spinning centrifugal disc that keeps you straight. Mm. In, so as you don't spin, it mm. wants to stay uh, centralized to where it started spinning. Yeah. 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 So the, you, the force it takes to move that bicycle wheel when you're mm. doing it physically. What, what, what kind of rock If you transfer to that yeah. to a, a eggshell of a crust around a liquid core, you know, that's just going to cause so much upheaval. Mm. Uh, even though, so we were, a magnetic polar reversal would be a relatively benign event when compared to a geological polar reversal. It's a bit of an understatement. Uh, even though it would be like, still be likely to cause some seismic activity, uh, unusual tidal movements, some major disruptions among bird, aquatic and animal navigation, and certainly massive microwave electronic communication and electrical malfunctions, it was also universally agreed that a magnetic polar reversal would also result in a further lessening of the protective magnetic and ozone fields that encapsulate the planet and allow harmful solar radiation to temporarily penetrate down to the Earth's surface. 
that's what I would, that, that's the thing with the polar shift that worries me, right? When, how does, how long does it take for the magnetic fields to settle? Yeah. Right. And, and what, and what kind be of the same strength that yeah, they that's are. Right. Cause currently. they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't just shift, right? If it's, if it's doing that, it's going to, the magnetic fields would change. They've got to be fluctuating. Yeah. 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 I think. Um, geological evidence indicates that the last reversal of the magnetic poles, of course, some, sometime around three quarters of a million years ago. Scientists agree since there is no evidence of any mass extinction at the time, the effects on life must have been relatively small. By way of comparison, is that three quarters of a million years ago? 750,000. So 750,000 is 30,000 years after the Palladian ship crashed into the earth, man. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether there's any... Could have upset some fields. I wonder whether there's any correlation there. Um, by way of comparison, a full ge- geographic polar reversal involving the poles of the planet physically changing places would be a much different proposition to a magnetic reversal. A full polar reversal would be an end on, uh, event over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever and it would be totally catastrophic, capable of quickly destroying all life on Earth. Yeah, it would. Everything would just yeah die um badly as well it'd be pretty bad some scholars believe that a full polar reversals are a catastrophic but unfortunately routine event that is a normal part of our planet's rotational mechanism and that they in actual fact happen in regular orbital cycles where are you going to go with this one uh there are reports in a in the bible of a day of sunlight that was two days long and accompanied by dramatic events that apparently occurred in the distant past surprisingly we also find confirmation of such an occurrence from the other side of the world in South America, where we find reports that a day was that of a day that was night in which the sun never rose. Obviously the sun and the moon would have remained where they are, where they were. And the event would have had to be the result of some type of retardation of the earth's rotational mechanism and possibly even a celestial flip in his work. Critias, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato also hints at a polar reversal when he says, at periods, the universe has a present circular motion, and at other periods, it revolves in the reverse direction. Of all the changes which take place in the heavens, this reversal is the greatest and most complete. But Plato also gave a warning during such reversal periods, there is at that time great destruction of animals in general. I love it how they just, yeah, that's that's not what, that's only, <laughs> it's the least of what would happen. <laughs> It is not fully understood what the exact mechanics behind polar reversals are exactly. They would be speculated that a, sh- a slip in the lithosphere due to the weight of ice buildup at the South Pole could account for it. However, it is, however, widely accepted and agreed that reversals tend to happen when there is a wide divergence between the magnetic and geographic poles as is presently the case. Just hold up there a sec. Yeah, yeah. We've just had a we just had input a, just, into the chat. We've had an input, right? Uh, during the past century, both magnetic poles have been moving northwest. The North Pole from Canada towards Siberia as fast as 60 kilometers per year and the South Pole towards Australia at 10 to 15 k's per year. See, I thought it was going the other way. There you go. But isn't the ice breaking on our end? Isn't the ice breaking where we can see it? Isn't that the whole problem? I can't tell you. 
where we can see it as compared to where the bases are. Oh, I think you might be getting the two conflated. Yeah, like right. as in location as compared to Australia, as compared to where the, where the bases, bases are, are, where our slice of Antarctica is. Exactly. That so, so what you're saying? Oh, they are joining together. So they're moving towards each other. Is that what you're saying, Grub? How that the fuck does yeah, this? they're kind of shrinking towards each other. Okay. Well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that means we open up directly to the sun. Yeah. yeah on one yeah. side of the planet, we would open up directly to the sun because the magnetic field would concentrate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's well, not. Cool. That's not good for CMEs. No, that's not cool. There's, there's <laughs> nothing cool that's, about it. That's, isn't that your man? Isn't that the giant stick man? The jumping man? Yes. Yes. With the rings? Yeah, with the rings. Yeah, that's the, the representation of the... Mm. Yeah, of the solar flares. That's the, the a, jumping. A big man. vortex. Yeah, big vortex. <laughs> we won't. We won't go into that. I'm, I'm going to mute now. Don't. don't yeah. <laughs> yeah, mute yourself, man. We can't do it. Um, that episode's going to be epic. By the way, we've yeah. got to organize a time. It is not fully understood what the exact mechanics behind polar reversals are exactly, though it is speculated that the slip in the lithosphere due to the weight of the eye. Okay. Uh, da 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 da. As is another, presently the case. Yeah. As another possibility is the Earth is grossly unbalanced. That is, the greatest area of the landmass is immediately opposite the greatest body of ocean. And since the relative weights between the land and water are disproportionate, one side of the planet is much heavier than the other, making its rotational forces act like a little unbalanced washing machine. That's interesting. This theory also gives rise to the possibility that some force of influence, possibly a largish meteor impact or the close passage of another celestial body, could literally flip the planet over on its axis. So we're talking. So I don't think he's talking about crustal displacement. I think he's thinking the whole bloody ball just goes the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Which there is, that would make us rotate the wrong way, right? Or the opposite. When I Which say is wrong what way, Plato I mean the just opposite. said it reverses. Yeah. Exactly. And they're, they're what I'm, they're, when they were talking about those ancient accounts of like two day. Days, yeah, days that last for yeah. two days or two nights or whatever it is. There is another account that's fucking popping out of the back of my head that said the sun rose in the west. Yes, there was yes. one of those ones. The yes. sun rose the in sun the west. Rose in the west, which yeah. which would add to which I can't remember any more details as to where it comes from or what it is, mm. but which would add to this whole tale as well. Because mm. if you if you rotated eastwards for one day yeah and then at the end of that day was when the flip occurred and then you rotated back the other way it would seem like on one side of the earth it would seem like it lasted for two days yes because the sun went from east to west then oh we flipped and it went from west west to east east. and on the opposite side of the earth it would be night for two nights so does it flip or does it stutter in its rotation around the sun yeah yeah Yes, my good man. Yes, mate. Yes, you have something to say, old boy. <laughs> if you look at a, a ball yeah. from above, the earth from above, and it's rotating on its axis and it's got that little wobble or whatever it's doing, yep. what if it actually, uh, the center point of rotation shifts to, to towards the sun or away from the sun and actually makes the earth kind of pivot on a point rather than uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So that, Dude, you're you kind of know what I mean? Like you're a gear goes off center. Saying, goes right? eccentric. It goes eccentric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you, that, so. that wobble. So to, I, I'm hearing two things, right? Number one, that wobble could uh, elongate, right? Get larger. Mm. And therefore the wobble of the earth, mm. it would then reach a certain point of force where it would have to do something, right? Mm. It would wobble. Or we stagger in our orbit, right? For whatever reason, we slow down or we stop. Instead, the Earth stops spinning, but the sun keeps coming around. You know what I mean? Or not? Because, no, well, for two days, it's got to reverse, doesn't it? It's got to stop and go the other way. Yeah. No, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge... Yeah. Uh, but didn't... Wouldn't then, like, one of the... Uh, when, 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 when did the polar, sh- polar star shift... Because you would actually oh, yeah, see this was, like a spiral yeah. in the sky, you know. What I mean? it was, it in was Australia, the... you would see a spiral rather than streak across the, stri- the the sky from east to west. It would all of a sudden the stars would be going around in a circle. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You know yes. what I mean? I know what you're saying. So the the previous North Star, well, it's now Sirius, isn't it? But it was the Dog Star. Is that right? No, P- Polaris. Polaris, that's the one. Polaris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. I think, I think before that it was it was called Tubin Tubit or Tubit uh Tubin. Mm. Something like that. It's one of the stars from the Draco constellation. Yeah, it is from Draco, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe have a Tube, quick maybe have a quick, maybe have a quick look, mate. What was the previous North Star? Because um, I think Gobekli Tepe is aligned to it. Some of the Gobekli Tepe stuff is aligned to the previous North Star. And it does that is that the same thing where it it um because there's that other thing too, where the megalithic sites, there's a percentage of the megalithic sites on the planet that are off kilter. Yeah, they're well, like they, five degrees out or whatever they are. Isn't it the uh, they're aligned like thirty degrees? Yeah, yeah, off, something like off that. Off the equator, off the equator. Yeah, yeah. and all of a line between them all. And is that you know is that not a yeah geographical shift? Of well, some that's that's where our basketball theory came. Yeah, in yeah, back in the day. We were, we were talking about crustal if, displacement under the magma. That's right. Yeah. So we were talking about as if the uh, if that thirty degrees was if you lowered that to where that was once the equator, mm. um, and all the all the sites all, all the sites aligned up along the equator, and then you got an impact, and that forced the Earth to tilt that thirty degrees off its off its axis, mm. sort of thing. That was which our, is what we're talking. That about was our here, explanation. Years ago, years, we long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's re- there's research in the cupboard there somewhere. Yeah. Um, Vega was the North Star several thousand years ago, and it will regain status in about twelve thousand years. Yeah, because that's the procession of the equinox. Yeah. Right. The North Star stays constant. Well, throughout it's one de- moves one degree every seventy two years or whatever it is. But yep. Um. Yeah. It yeah, stays that's constant. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yep. On your mate, it is known that a vast streams of magma constantly flow beneath the Earth's crust. Much of it rises deep from within the Earth through the movement of tectonic plates, but is a good deal of it also produced from the heat buildup of the pressure and the movement in the region where the Earth's crust meets the second layer. But see, this is all changing now because they, 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 the other day they said they found an ocean under the, under the mantle, right? Mm-hmm. They detected an ocean under there. Right. Right. They're finding cavities under there. That whole, as we've said a number of times here before, that geological slice that you get of the, you know, the, yeah, the crust the and the, 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 it's, it's just a guess. It's yeah. not, they don't know. Well, as, as we, as we keep, cause we can't, we can't physically investigate it. No. So as we create tech 
that picks up on different things can scan inwards into the planet's interior we create different pictures mm. as to what we what we're actually seeing yeah but the 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 method um oh thuban 5000 years ago yeah right Yeah, and it's Polaris now. Yeah. Um, oh, we'll keep going. The second layer is called the mantle. is much harder than the crust due to rotation, axial wobble, and the sheer weight of pressure. I like the weight of the land versus the weight of the ocean. That's an interesting thing to think about, mm -hmm. eh? The crust is in a state of constant movement and is always rubbing against the mantle. The rubbing produces heat, more magma, which creates a thin layer of sludge between the crust and the mantle. It's been theorized that this thin layer of fluid-like sludge is known, known as the lithosphere, that occasionally allows the crust to simply slip around the outside of the mantle. Just imagine a baked potato wrapped in aluminium foil with the potato as the mantle and the foil as the crust. It is easy to slip the foil around the other side of the potato without changing the orientation of the actual potato. In this type of scenario, the actual planetary axis would not shift ge geographically, but the crust would reorient itself in relation to the mantle with catastrophic results. This was called drastic geographic and magnetic changes on the surface. You can you can imagine what kind of earthquakes would occur on a planetary scale if the entire crust slipped around the mantle. It has been predicted that in such a slip of the sphere, most of the water on the planet would temporarily relocate to the poles before spreading out around the globe again. Ah. Tidal locking to the sun like the moon to the earth. Yes. Well, this is the thing, right? I mean, and it's, it, isn't it hard? It's hard not to mention ether because what holds us in place and what governs our rotation around the sun because that wouldn't be our magnetic pole. That would be the gravitational forces of the sun and whatever that's exerting, and also the planets that are in between us too, right? Because isn't it like if the solar system was one degree out, nothing would exist? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The solar, Our solar system has been designed perfectly. Yeah. That if everything was one degree out, well, if, it if, wouldn't work. If right? gravity was stronger than it is, everything would implode in on itself. Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's the perfect strength. Yeah. For the speed with which everything spins, yeah. if gravity was one percent weaker, mm. everything would fly apart. Mm. Everything would be moving away from each other, even more so than what it is. Mm. So what about you know ether shifts or CMEs or you know the sun doing weird stuff because it's a star? You know what I mean? Like they've got to think pulsing, about that. pulsing, pulsing in yeah. its gravitational strength. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which it you know. Uh, the wall of water produced in such an event would be well beyond anything that would be categorized as a wave. <laughs> yeah, you would say so. In such an event, the continent that is now located on the South Pole, for example, could theoretically move to a different location and a new continent could literally take its place to begin to its own private ice age, just as Antarctica is doing now. I thought the ice chases the poles. Um. Is such a slipping of the lithosphere possible? Yes, unfortunately it is. The Earth is flying through space. When I say flying, I mean really flying, folks. I mean we're really stepping out, pedal to the metal. The Earth's rotational speed is about a 1,000 miles per hour. While we're spinning like some huge top, we're also racing nonstop around the sun. The Earth travels along its orbital plane at around 66,600 uh, miles per hour, or 18.5 miles per second. I know that all seems nice and casual and peaceful while you just sit around on the surface reading or whatever, but folks, we are really on the move. Earth's axis, of course, is tilted the perpendicular about 23 and a half degrees, which gives us our 
four seasons, but while we're spinning at this angle, we are also wobbling slightly on this 23.5 degree axis. This slight discrepancy to the vertical obliquity of the elliptic is an excursion of about 2.4 degrees in either direction from our true axis. The full cycle of one wobble from 24.5 to 22.1 takes around 13,000 years, 26,000 years. That's the precession of the equinox, right? Um, providing uh, from point A back to point A, providing us with a 26,000-year precession of the zodiac. You get all that? It seems solid on the surface, but it's not really a total, totally stable rotation. It's also the fact that the Earth isn't actually a globe, is it? It's more... Um, swells at the equator. Swells at the equator. Yeah. So looks a little bit like an utron. Um <laughs> I'm just stirring grub up. Uh, one of the major factors contributing to Elisophia's slip could be the enormous, ever-increasing weight of the South Polar Ice Cap. The Antarctic Ice Cap grows by an estimated 10 million cubic metres of ice a day just through normal condensation, dew and snowfall, which generates an incredible amount of added, ice, added weight to the ice cap daily. It's melting, man. It's not true, dude. Uh, when such a weight is combined with axial wobble and a layer of fluid-like sludge between the crust and the mantle, a sudden slip of the lithosphere becomes a very real possibility and it would only take something like a celestial event to serve as a catalyst to trigger it off. Similar... He started to throw celestial event into the argument. Yeah. And I'm wondering if he's talking about a planet that might be on a very long orbit. orbit yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's a celestial event. Well, the well, the like he's leading yeah. us towards that. The celestial mechanics of the solar system dictate that there is something out there. Can we have a quick look at uh, Grub? He's over there. No, no, Sun he's, induction. He's, yeah, he's to just the north to the to, to the, the earth. earth. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, um, a similar effect to that which creates the fluid layer found in the lithosphere can be seen on a smaller scale in the solar ice cap itself. The enormous weight of the ice resting on the continent beneath it subjects the surface to the continent of a huge amount of pressure. Pressure creates heat, and when that is combined with tectonic movement, the result is a thin layer of sludge lying between the ice cap and the continent, and one that is in constant state of movement. Yeah, given this fact, there is even the distinct likelihood that the entire South Polar ice cap could even just slip off the continents it's resting on and into the ocean, causing massive floods and tsunamis worldwide. The fact the ice is a diamagnetic can be demonstrated by hanging an ice cycle from a very thin string and then bringing a strong magnetic near one end, the ice cycle will twist away from the magnet. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a, that adds fuel to the fire. It does, doesn't it? Thanks, Grub. Uh, floods and tsunamis. Uh, the great flood of Noah in the Bible was said to have come from the south. The ancient deluge spoken of in the Sumerian tales was reported to have come from the south. In fact, it's all the same in virtually all the ancient myths that deal with the mention of the flood in any detail at all. Really? I didn't know it was that. It would come mm, from the south. That's a new tidbit. That's a new tidbit. I didn't know that. Uh, where are we going? Oh, yeah, we're nearly there. There is an abundant wealth of evidence to suggest that the people of the ancient world understood the cycle of rotational events surrounding polar reversal far better than we do today, and took the event quite seriously. It is no surprise that they consider the information to be extremely important. They understood that as one day gives way to the next and one year gives way to the next, so does one age give way to the next. 
They understood very well that when these changes occur, when there are periods of great disruption and turbulence that can be incredibly destructive to life on Earth, they've stressed repeatedly through their monuments and texts that this destructive cycle is repeated again and again is a routine element of the planet we live on. All the texts, all the monuments, all the legends from all cultures that refer to such an occurrence hint at the same message. The event always occurs close to a change in the zodiac. Yeah. We are currently in the no time between Pisces and Aquarius. The work done in Hamlet's Mill by Giorgio Santillana and Hertha von Daschen, plus a basic understanding of celestial mechanics, aptly show that due to our current orbital position in the vastness of the Milky Way, the possibility of something like this occurring very soon are extremely possible, which goes back to the Gobekli Tepe that Pillar 43 has four dates, and one of them is today. Um, through studying, and they see that's different. That would the Gobekli Tepe translation wasn't done when this was written, mm-hmm. and that talks about four dates, and one of them being today. Exactly. That adds... Yeah. fuel yeah. to uh, Maxi's fire that it had it just happens on a celestial event right there seems to be a, a joining mm-hmm. um through studying ancient texts geological evidence and by modern scientific methods we can absolutely be certain that polar reversal reversals have definitely occurred quite often in the past we are able to irrefutably predict that another polar reversal of some type will indeed occur again in the future and that it is in fact only a matter of time Unfortunately, there is absolutely nothing we can do to prevent such an event, and when it does happen, it has the potential to either be a huge inconvenience or a catastrophe of epic proportions with you for few survivors. Whether it will be, whichever it will be, we can only hope that such an event does not occur for as long as possible. I mean, yeah. Um, look, so... The poles, the poles, as Grub just said to us, the poles are actually moving towards each other, whereas I thought the opposite was true. Well, I'm moving away from it, like they were going the other direction. Yep. Throw up the chat, bro. Um, Grub sent us a message from his cocoon. Uh, surrounded by bear traps. Uh, the Henday end of day's cross located in France shows the sun and the cross of the procession as well as an angry sun. See, I, the sun has a... You know, and obviously Robert Shock. So we've got Celestial Event, Planet Nine. We'll just call it that. Um, you can take over, mate. Thanks, um, you've got Planet Nine, which is, there's that. Then you've got Solar Flares, which Robert Shock seemed, is, yeah. he's on the Solar he's Flare. He's on the Solar Flare instead of the uh, impact. And then we've got Randall. More than mm-hmm. we can handle Randall. <laughs> um, he is all about the impact. What if it's D or the above? The celestial planet nine comes into our orbit, upsets the sun, releases a comet from Ju- out rotating, you know, releases a set of rocks from Jupiter, and then everything just <laughs> happens all at once every 12,000 years. And we get shit on. Yeah, every 12,000 years, it all goes down. And when did it last happen? Well, about 12,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. 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 Um, that sucks. Can I just say, mate? You only had like one vocal stroke tonight. I'll fucking, I'll give you that. You, you're on a roll. Oh, was I doing okay? You, you know, the, bleh, 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 you know, when you, yeah. I call them vocal strokes oh, yeah. that you, that you have sometimes. And I'll tell you what, one is one. all I've counted tonight. That's good, man. You are fucking, you are smooth tonight, That's good. brother. You're doing well. That's good. That's good. 
look, I, I spent all day talking, so sometimes my mind gets ahead of everything. So, hey, yeah, <laughs> sometimes you it could be um positive or negative. You yeah, know, that's it could, right. You could either be worn out, yeah, or you might just be warmed up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I was looking forward to tonight. Well, I feel like today you're warmed up, brother. I am. Uh, did you want to add anything, Grub, before we move on, mate? We are talking about Sumerians. Yeah, the um. You could combine both of those theories of shock and Randall. Absolutely, yeah. By saying that the uh, the sun cools down enough to get like a thick enough coating around it. Yep. And it actually has like a micronova. Uh, and by that, it'll actually be spewing all the, all the, plasma all the dense well. matter. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. And then the dense matter hits the earth, creates the black layer with all the little micro diamonds and, and platinum and all this stuff. Mm. Ooh. Now, mate, I, I take him in some yeah, I, I know. Of. That's great. And look, I don't want to let you go, man, but I know it's um, you know, you've got to put the Sasquatch to bed. So if you need to go, brother, you just let us know, all right? Because it's getting late down where you are. Yeah, uh, I'm, don't don't forget, I'm um, I'm time warping here, right? Yeah, it's I know. Not yeah, not, not only is it 2023, but it's also one hour ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you need to, if you need to go, mate, but you a can. Construct. Yeah, if you need to go, you can, man. If you need to, so. Sumerian sounds sounds interesting, but uh, I know, yeah. I know. I'm gonna go to work tomorrow. Well, 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 let's let's see let's see where Maxie's. Um... That's all right, Grub. Well, I think Grub's leaving us, mate. He's all right, with... Grubby boy. I'll have to I'll have to leave you be. You might you might get lost, but <laughs> what are we I'm already lost. Action, I'm already lost, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got bear traps, bro. Fuck, bear, bear traps, bro. <laughs> Look, man, you just keep right, that mer- you keep that mercury spinning, my friend. All right, mate. Until next time. <laughs> Thanks, brothers. Take Thanks, care. Man. Cheers, Cheers mate. mate. Catch ya. Right. Bye. All right, mate. Uh, right, I'm I'm plunging in. Yeah, balls we can, deep. We can get rid of the chat now. I'm hoping to follow your lead. We're going for smoothness. Smoothness. Don't throw too many fucking names at me. <laughs> yeah. Remember, like two episodes. Oh, ago? the Indian stuff. He the Indian, oh, the Vimana Shaster, and, oh, and then me. there was the Viking stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, just it's all me. it's all R's and Z's oh. and. Man, oh, here I am, just this bogan dude, just, just trying, trying first, to man. read a few things and and just cannot get me tongue around it. And I've never seen these words either. Anyway, so what was it? What are we saying? The, the tale of the Sumerians. Tale of Sumerians. We've got a little introductory passage here, and then we're going to get into the art of translation. I guess it's going to go into. Uh, What's Sitchin, his name? Sitchin's maybe. translation of the tablets, maybe, uh, and and maybe somewhat of an explanation because with the art of translation. But let's just read on, and we'll find out what Max has to say. I would like to now relate to you to a story. I would like to now relate to you a story. Mm. It's quite an epic tale, but I feel that time should be given to relate the account in full and afford to it the attention and detail it deserves. Though it will, of course, be highly summarized, I feel this story can provide some important pieces of our puzzle. It's a remarkable tale, and well worth telling, to say the least. A brief rundown of how this translation was arrived at is in order, so I will provide some basic information for you, though rest assured, the translation has been meticulously researched by its author, and I'm quite sure his interpretations are correct. 2006, speaking all over again, if you would like to explore the tale further, and I highly recommend that you do so, 
A full bibliography is provided in the sources section at the end of this book. The Art of Translation Our story does not even begin until the mid-1800s, because it was then that archaeologists first discovered the remains of the ancient civilization of Sumer. The subsequent wealth of hitherto unknown records meticulously documented on not hundreds or thousands, but tens of thousands of clay tablets uncovered by archaeologists that were compiled by the scribes of this ancient culture has since astounded archaeologists, theologians, and scholars alike. The ancient civilization of Sumer existed in the area of the Persian Gulf that was once known as Mesopotamia, now southern Iraq. The Sumerian writings are perhaps the oldest record of an actual civilization that we have any real knowledge of, other than Gebekli Tepe. Mm. But that wasn't, you know, wasn't public at the time. Mm. Through clay tablets, cylinder seals, and stelae, the Sumerians have provided us with a graphic and richly detailed version of man's early histories, including the story of creation, both of the earth and of man. The texts also tell us of fierce and devastating wars fought over the possession and control of the earth's resources that ultimately led to the utter destruction of the Sumerian civilization. Many of these ancient texts are written in complex metaphor. In this respect, the Sumerians were no exception. The texts can still be interpreted in this manner to reveal fantastic and epic stories of either no apparent or obscure mythological meaning. However, a new insight into the real method of translating them has now opened up an entire new meaning so that now incomplete contrast to the Christian or even Babylonian creation myths, which still remain full of constant symbolism, vagueness and metaphor, the early and Sumerian vision of the story can be viewed as an almost scientific account of events, of well-documented events that happened in a very specific timeline. It has now been universally agreed by both scholars and theologians alike that the biblical story of creation does indeed have its basis in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which itself is undoubtedly an abbreviated version of the much earlier Sumerian text. Which echoes through Egypt and... 100%. Yeah. They're all connected. This can easily be confirmed as a great many parallels are seen in the Sumerian account when it's compared to the Babylonian and Christian creation stories. It appears obvious that both of the latter accounts were heavily influenced by the much longer and more detailed Sumerian story. The Sumerian account of the creation of the earth and the rise of man, as controversial uh, as it may be, is strangely enough the only tale that adequately, adequately provides a scientific explanation that is plausible for not just the earth and mankind, but for many other puzzling aspects of our solar system too. I'd say that's quite a reasonable achievement for 6,000-year-old cuneiform and hieroglyphic texts carved into tablets and stelaes. 
how we've seen that the Sumerian tablets and stelae saying they they're very very interesting. A vividly detailed interpretation of these Sumerian texts was done by the brilliant, though controversial, scholar and archaeologist Zachariah Sitchin, who then published his findings in a masterwork he aptly named the Earth Chronicles. The astounding work consists of a series of six books of detailed translations and interpretations, interpretations to date. Sitchin is a respected archaeologist who worked for several decades on Sumerian translations and archaeological sites. His books are intelligently presented, meticulously researched, highly informative, and extremely well-documented books containing details on almost every aspect of, of the texts, and I highly recommend reading them. <laughs> it dawned on Sitchin that since the Babylonian tale has its roots in the Sumerian account, a better understanding of the texts may be achieved if one was to interpret the Babylonian. cosmology of the tale as actually being Sumerian. God, I'm slow on the scroll. <laughs> using it's a this, heavy pause. It is, it is. Using this new approach, and in a labour of over 50 years, Sitchin has since painstakingly pieced the story together from fragments of Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, Assyrian, Hittite, Canaanite, Egyptian, and Hebrew sources into a most remarkable and scientific account of our real beginnings. The story that Sitchin found emerging from these tablets was so controversial, the implications so explosive for mankind, that many people have found it extremely difficult to take the story at face value. Yet every single anomaly we are faced with about our Earth, our solar system, and ourselves is mentioned and explained in these 6,000-year-old Sumerian accounts. How? The enormous bulk of evidence he also presents to support his conclusions is literally quite overwhelming coincidence. Overwhelming. Coincidence? The thing I love the most about Sitchin's books is as ponderous as they may sometimes become due to the sheer volume of information and research they contain, is just that, the meticulous and detailed research the reader is presented with to support the conclusions that are reached. Sitchin will inform you that something is so in a short passage, but nothing is taken at face value, and the explanation as to why it is so may run into many pages of detailed research and cross-referencing. And this fact is also why Sitchin's conclusions are so credible, because of his meticulous attention to detail. Isn't I'm, I'm finding, and this is just a personal thing, right, because of the fact that Sitchin's, since 06, a lot of the Sitchin stuff is... It's, it's not, had a heavy, a heavy debunking. Mm. Yeah, yeah, a heavy scepticism has been put onto Sitchin's work. Yeah, and I'm finding from a mental aspect that I'm I'm battling in my head. Yes, the things that he's saying. But have we all fallen victim to a 
misinformation to a or great propaganda. Mm. You know, you a Smithsonian thing. Yeah, yeah. Would be don't, the don't pay attention to Sitchin. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's yeah. crazy. Which, which I think Max might have even said it earlier in his own book. He may have said something along the lines of, "Whenever anyone tells you, don't read that guy." Yeah, that's a good reason to read to maybe read that guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we may have fallen. We may have been duped, my good man. Well, let's keep Maybe going. it's time to bring back the sitch. Mm. <laughs> well, let's move forward with it with an open mind. Meticulous attention to detail. Have you ever noticed that whenever anyone releases a book, oh, he's about to do it again. <laughs> he's about to do it again. That contains radical ideas that disagree with mainstream academia. There is always a veritable storm of writers and scholars who strive to prove them wrong and point out the holes in their various theories. Just look at the berating that Eric von Deniken received for the ridiculous lack of research in his book, The Chariots of the Gods. Von Deniken was actually thought-provoking, but his lack of research and disregard for facts really was appalling. See, now Von Tannikin is known as a high-level researcher. You know what I mean? Like, he's he went to Australia Stonehenge mm-hmm. with Richard Patterson, mm-hmm. right? He's he's one of the – he's up there with Graham Hancock as mm-hmm. the premium researcher. And now we're just being it's, told it's that the charity of the gods yeah. was not done well at all. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of fluctuation in who's who, who's hot, who's on point. Mm. One very notable point about Zachariah Sitchin's works, however, is that, as controversial as they are, since his ver- first book was published in 75, no one has yet come forth with a valid argument to disprove his interpretations of the texts or his conclusions. That may be up for debate. Mm. While there are many who disagree with his interpretations, as much as they may find the story hard to swallow, no one has been able to dispute the events the Sumerians describe. Mm. In regards to this, Sitchin himself has always stated that the story of create creation he has presented in the Earth Chronicles is not his. It's the story as it was related by the Sumerians, and if anyone has a problem with the tale, then their arguments should be directed at the Sumerians and not him. All he has done is present us with what he believes to be an accurate translation of the texts. As I previously mentioned, these translations represent Sitchin's personal labour for over 50 years. And just on that point, if anyone... A lot of people like to pick apart like a story, right? Mm-hmm. Or a theory mm-hmm. or a translation. Mm-hmm. But if if I really hope that that a, that some debunker of Sitchin's will go through and rewrite the whole thing as to what if the translation's wrong, retranslate the whole thing, yeah, the whole thing, yeah, and write write out the whole text. Yeah, what's as, the as, what's as the debunk- what, what is the true debunking as opposed to instead of cherry picking your arguments? Yeah, oh, yeah. this this word can mean this or yeah. that because that's the question, isn't it? That's been the the, the fact that Sitchin translated incorrectly according to modern scholars of the Sumerian tablets employed by the Smithsonian. Is that so by all means retranslate the whole fucking thing and give us your telling of events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Sitchin has given these people a platform by doing 50 years worth of work. Mm-hmm. People can just hover around like blowflies mm. and shit on bits on and pieces 50 years, yeah, on yeah. 50 pe- years of work mm. sort of thing. It's like, no, put together your own 50 year piece of work mm. as an argument to mine. Yeah. And you then know, come match like yeah. with like. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And it's, a, and it's also, it's, it's, it, it reads into the human psyche a little bit as well. It's just like, cause if you have, um, if you can place enough doubt in the mind, yes. Like I just said, as yep. we were reading this, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm having mm-hmm. a reaction mentally mm-hmm. because of because of Sitchin's name. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Back we go. Much of the earlier Sumerian tale can still be gleaned from studying the Christian story of Genesis, in particular the Hebrew version. But of course. Much of the translation is open to interpretation, and it is mainly in the respect that the tales differ. Although the early Sumerian version is undoubtedly more complete, in his book, The Twelfth Planet, Sitchin aptly points out translational errors. For example, the Christian story tells us that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But if we look at it in the Hebrew... What is actually written is, in the beginning, God created the rakia and the earth. Sitchin points out that the Hebrew word rakia also has several possible translations, depending on its context, and one of those translations is firmament. Therefore, in the Christian tale, the word rakia has been translated as firmament and is interpret- interpreted as heaven or ether. Nice. As in the Sumerian story, in the Babylonian tale, via an awful lot of metaphor, we are informed as to the order of birth of all the planets. But in respect to the earth, we are told that it was the god Marduk who slew the haughty dragon Tiamat and did the creating. Marduk was a supreme god of ancient Babylon, but in many ways the statement is virtually identical to what is said in the Christian Bible if you want to take it that way. However, in the Sumerian version of events, we are basically told that it was the celestial lord, Nibiru, who created the Reikia and the earth. I'm pretty sure Marduk or Marduk or however you want to pronounce that, yep. right? Is another one of those gods that like to be covered in gold. Lovely. Right? We talked about the gold, you know, the gold powder in the lake. Yep. I'm pretty sure, you know, Marduk, Mar, you know, whatever. Yeah. Is another one of those gods that part of that process, part of there was a there was a uh, a festival mm-hmm. where someone was actually painted with gold yep. as a representation to the gods. Yep. So interesting. Another echo. Mm. Now, Nibiru Planet nine. is thought to be a specific Sumerian god. So again, it can mean the same thing as what we started with. But here's the thing. To the ancient Sumerians, Nibiru is also known to have been used as a reference to a celestial body, a planet. And they are quite specific about this, as has been noted by Sitchin. 
Another translation of the Hebrew word rakia is hammered bracelet. And that is also quite significant. It all lies in the personal interpretation of the Hebrew texts, you see. So with a more open and honest approach to the translations, the Christian story of in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth very easily translates to reveal the earlier Babylonian and Sumerian versions of Marduk, Nibiru, created the hammered bracelet and the earth. And the Sumerian texts are quite specific about how these events transpired. It wasn't, isn't it Hebrew, the original Hebrew, the numbers and letters, letters were numbers and numbers were letters? Um, I'm sure. There, yeah, you might be murdering that, that, but yes, I think um, letters have a numerical strength. Yeah, significance too. Significance yeah. sort of thing too. But yeah, so yeah, I'm not too sure mm. about any, like, yeah. Always grub when you need him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking to Sassy. Oh, what are you talking about? And the Sumerian texts are quite specific about how these events transpired. The hammered bracelet referred to in the Sumerian texts is, of course, a very adequate and quite accurate description of the asteroid belt in our solar system that lies in between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Mm -hmm. So in reality, we find that the hammered bracelet translation is actually far more in context with our known solar system than that of heaven. It also quite... It is also quite significant that Bode's law shows that there should, in fact, be another planet existing in our solar system at the location of the asteroid belt. There is every sign to suggest there once was. Instead, all we find there now is an enormous collection of rocks, debris, and cosmic rubble stretching out in a vast ring around the sun like a hammered bracelet. Bode's law also heavily suggests that there should be at least one more planet in our solar system. Such a planet was positively confirmed in late 2005. Yeah, but they never found it. They confirmed that there's something causing a wobble. Yep. But they haven't found it yet, I think. Is that... Yeah, because the, there is the... Oh. What's because there, so there's the Kuiper Belt, yeah, which is our asteroid thing between mm. Mars and Jupiter. Mm. Then there's the one that like Pluto's part of, yeah. Like there's that oh, shit. The name, yeah, of yeah, yeah, me. yeah. I know what you're talking but about. But yeah, though. there's another belt there, mm -hmm. sort of thing outside that. Everyone's right now shouting at me like it's it's, it's this one. It's, I don't know it either. So leave it's right mind. there yeah. on the tip of my tongue. But yeah, send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> Because also, and I don't know where he's going to go with this, mm -hmm. but technically there was a planet where that the hammered bracelet exists. Yep. There was a war, right? And this is where it's said that why Mars is like a half-peeled orange, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the war, the planet between Mars and Jupiter was destroyed. Mars was destroyed. And the remnants of the civilization from that period fled to earth now i don't know where i'm pulling that story from whether it's sumerian or sitchin i'm not sure however that's something that i have heard right that in the ancient past yes there was a planet there was a war between the martians and whoever lived on that planet and maybe the earthbound 
whoever they were. Mm-hmm. The big solar system war. They blew up the that planet, and Mars was a uh, collateral damage. And then they all came to Earth, which is why some of our measuring systems work on Mars, but they don't work here. Ah, uh, yeah, because the basis points are yeah. out. Their basis yeah, points are out. But if you Mar- put them on Mars, Mars smaller yeah. planet. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. I th- I've I've heard this same. I'm same trying to remember where it came it, from. It's it, it's it's it's. I think it's like Martians, Lemurians, and the moos the muons the muons and maybe i feel like i feel like it's got to do with that story yeah 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 um but I, yeah i can't yeah, i don't lock know it where, down I, any I, yeah, I don't know where right i'm now. pulling that knowledge yeah, from me I'm neither sure me I'm neither but you we've heard it's it somewhere we've deep about it. into thousands of hours yeah, exactly, of rabbit yeah. hole that's right yeah where it comes from yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah so the little man came and handed me a folder and said don't know where this come from it's pretty dusty but yeah, yeah say it anyway anyway back into the text how, how far have we got to go, mate, before I we keep going? Know. I don't bloody know. What are we looking at? Let's scroll down here. We got we got a lot. We got if a you lot. wanna if you wanna step in. I'm happy to step we've in. We've got a little bit of in the beginning. I well, was just I just felt like I was on a roll. I'd like to yeah, finish it. Let off, me go man. down to in the beginning and, and then we'll have a look at the rocket clock. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fine, mate. I'm happy. I'm 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 keen to yeah. Okay. He's given us he's given us the yeah, diagram he's there. He's given it to us. Weedness. There we are. Uh, All right, back in we go. Strap on your ear goggles. From their texts, it would appear that the Sumerians were in possession of quite a significant amount of scientific and astronomic knowledge and knew of all these things. For example, Uranus was unknown until 1781. You thought I was going to say Uranus. And Neptune. I know. It's getting old. and Or I'm getting old, one of the two. It's not funny anymore. And Neptune until 1846. In modern astronomy, we didn't even know our solar system had as many as nine planets orbiting the sun until 1936 when Pluto was discovered. It's not a planet, though. It had been previously thought that there were only eight Yet the Sumerians already knew of the existence of all of these planets 6,000 years ago, including our newly discovered member, which now makes 10, even as Bode's law suggested. Though the Sumerian texts say that there was actually 12, not 10, or even 11. So here we got a little description, little picture, inner planets, outer planets, yada, 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 asteroid belt. Well, yeah. Um, a little bit of Pluto, a little bit of and Nibiru. Nibiru is number twelve, right at the or end. Or when we when we throw, we got to throw Luna in here, which is the moon. Yes. So Mars. he's throwing. Oh no, he has a celestial it's body. Yeah, it's interesting. Because why are we counting what, Luna and not, not like all the fucking satellites? I was going to say. I mean, Jupiter's got moons that are pretty much the size of the Earth, isn't it? Well, they're not yeah, far off, but they're pretty large. Pretty large and in charge. Mm. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's, not that's to scale. Like, he said, like he said that, not to scale. Not to scale. <laughs> Thank you, Max, for pointing that out. As the diagram shows, the reasons for this discrepancy are firstly because they considered the sun to be a rightfully included member of the solar system, and secondly because they believe our moon actually has considerable history yes, of its own, yes. which is why he's including it. Right. Thank you, Max. He's always listening. He's always listening. He's always he's listening. listening to us. 
many scientists and scholars have surmised that our moon is too big to be called a real satellite and have debated whether the earth and the moon should really be classed as a double planetary system. Mm. The Sumerians believed it to be so, and their name for the celestial body to be known as the moon was Luna. Luna. The other planet that also exists in our solar system, the one that we have only now discovered, they name as Nibiru. The planet of the crossing. The planet of the crossing. The Sumerians say that Nibiru is a large planet, possibly comparable to size to Saturn or Uranus, and that it has an extremely vast elliptical orbit and that it takes 3,600 of our years to complete just one orbit around the sun. Mm. They also say that Nibiru is the dwelling place of the Anunnaki, their gods. Now, I have a question about this. Mm -hmm. Mainstream science is looking for inhabited planets in the Goldilocks zone because they're replicating Earth-like planets. planets, Yep. If you're on a 3,600-year fucking orbit around the sun and you only come into a warm zone once every once every 3,600 years, mm. how the fuck do you become advanced? Like, if, when you're out in the depths of space by yourself... Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a lizard people, maybe you don't need the sun. Maybe your cold's better for you. Yeah, but I'm wondering how life... Our understanding, our understanding of, of biological photosynthesis on that planet that in the first, yeah, 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 yeah. first place. That's what gets me with this story. Well, see, I think they're not saying, I mean, obviously he's, he's, he's making almost direct reference to Nibiru. However, I think in the modern scientific approach, they, they're looking that they think it's like would have once been a second sun or... Mm-hmm something like that because yep. most star systems that we observe or we can observe actually have two suns or yes they're, three they're suns, binary right? star systems yeah, yeah yeah and it's it, it apparently we're actually quite an odd mm. solar system in that regard mm. when you look at the billions upon billions of of systems, systems. and yeah i think that's they're, they're saying that whatever they're looking for was actually a second sun it wasn't necessarily a planet and the thing about nibiru because obviously you know during the chaos you know we can't talk about fire club um, that, you know, there was, you know, all the conspiracy theories come out to play because most of them were true. Uh, however, what Nibiru came back, but, and I sort of looked into it a little bit and I thought that Nibiru was always conveniently on the opposite side of the sun to us, which is why we never see it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or why we can't see it. Right. But I think they're saying that it's a massive elliptical orbit. Yes. Um, yeah. Which, if we, which is which the is pro- what the I think problem the, modern... the problem with that argument is, if we're doing three thousand six hundred orbits around the sun mm. to to their one, we catch. We're eventually. going to fucking see them eventually every every year of ours. That they're out out to the left of the sun, mm. and we're spinning around it. Every year we're going to be able to see them. Get closer to it, yeah. Yeah, because, no, we're just going, like, as in hiding behind the sun. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. No, yeah. you can't hide behind the sun because we're going round and round it like this, mm. and it's going like this around it. Well, we're going to see it every year. It's going to be out there it's wherever going to approach, it is. We're yeah. going to be on the right side. The sun won't be between us. 
Mm. And the, and that that's what I thought. Yeah, it, it's pretty convenient that it's always on the opposite side. You know? Yeah, there's no way it could stay on the opposite. Mm. It, it would have to be like like the whole moon. It would have to be on the opposite orbit. It would have to be not on a three thousand six hundred, but a a um. It would have to be at the same speed as us. Yeah, it'd have to be the exact rotation and speed. Side. Exactly on the opposite side. We'd never see it if yeah. it did that. But yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. All right. Numerous mentions of the Anunnaki are made in various religious texts, including the Christian Bible, in which they are often referred to as the Elohim and the Nephilim, or sometimes in more recent versions of the Bible, merely as giants. In their texts, the Sumerians repeatedly state that the time flows differently on Nibiru than how it flows on Earth. They stress the point that the flow of time on any given planet is directly related to the time it takes the planet to orbit its parent star, in this case, the sun. This means, for example, that it takes 12 Earth years for Jupiter to orbit the sun. A man living on Jupiter for one orbit would only physically age one age one year as opposed to someone standing on earth who would age 12 god i wish there was a full stop there mm. would only physically oh god i've just like years in the same period of earth time it therefore stands to reason that a person who lived on a planet that takes 3600 earth years to orbit the sun that that's that actually makes sense as to like the yeah, Sumerian yeah, yeah, kings, yeah, because yeah, they you know hundred twenty thousand yeah. year reigns. Yeah, 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 it's like that's a it's only ten years. Look, I can't compute how fucking life exists on that planet, but the numbers make the numbers sense. make sense. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That's why it's like we yeah we did one. They're not we're not they're not counting one Earth year. They're counting one Nibiru year. Yeah, Earth years to orbit the sun would also only age one year during the orbital time frame. Such discrepancies in time are you actually proven in part of Einstein's special theory of relativity because the time is relative to that local, yeah, that location. location yeah, yeah. It is also well known how time flows slower for astronaut, astronauts when they are away from Earth's rotational pull, for example. Einstein even speculated that time was a type of fabric that the planets roll across, similar to a ball rolling across a strip of linen. The Sumerians inform us that one year on planet Nibiru was called a Shah and was equivalent in time to 3,600 Earth years. They also say that the average Anunnaki lifespan was around about 120 shahs, which equates to 120 times 3,600 or 432,000 years. Mm -hmm. According to the Sumerian king list, we are... He's listening to us. He's listening to us. A period of 120 shahs passed for the time the Anunnaki first arrived on Earth until the time of the Great Flood, 
This is extremely significant as 432,000 is a number that also features very highly in numerous other mythologies as well. So 432 hertz is a healing hertz. 432 is nine. Echo, echo, echo. Exactly. Look, we may not have found exactly all the answers, but fuck, we are... It's we so are close. pinging off yeah. a lot of dots. I know, here. I know. The same shit keeps repeating over and over again. Over and over and over and over again. Now, before you start dismissing all this offhand, I again stress to you and ask you to remember that as far-fetched and bizarre as all this may sound to you, that this is not a fantasy tale contrived by myself or by Zachariah Sitchin is in fact gleaned from translations of 6,000-year-old Sumerian clay tablets. And as we progress, you will see that the Sumerian account really is the most plausible explanation of creation that exists. It is also worth noting that the Sumerian record of events is the only account that provides totally a plausible series of events that adequately explains every single puzzle we are faced with about the rest of our solar system too. The fact that they knew of all the planets in our solar system, even their correct relative sizes, rotational movements, and eccentricities, details that take advanced scientific knowledge to discover, plus of the existence of the asteroid belt, also raises the question, if their story is untrue, then how on earth were they able to acquire such accurate and detailed knowledge? And this is the, um, it's the king's list, it's the pharaoh's list, it's the same thing all over again. Yes, they're advanced, yes, they did this, yes, they did that. However, no, they were wrong about that other stuff. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, exactly. Mm. But when if just one percent is true, exactly. If that's, you know that's, yeah, it's only one percent, man. Yeah, you can stack coincidences, but the more you stack on top of each other, the more you're starting to fucking convince me. And how many coincidi, as the UTC dictionary dictates, mm. that is the word. Do we need? But you know, when we talk about numbers, we talk about numerology Look, we talk I'm about looking, story I'm we just talk gonna about call it like five five <laughs> well we've got a lot more than I'm five we've got a lot more than about five, five we've got a lot in more one argument five. and now now you you know you had my curiosity yeah yeah we've got a lot more than finish it off mate and then we might pack it up i think definitely mate let's face it how in the world were these ancient peoples ever even able to calculate precession of the equinoxes Mere knowledge of its existence requires some very advanced scientific know-how. For now, just consider the fact that it takes 72 years for the vernal point to move through just one degree of the elliptic. Would you notice a one degree change in the location of the stars in 72 years? No, I don't think so. The Sumerians called such a one-degree shift in the heavens a celestial portion. If you're living for 432,000 Earth years, you will notice. Now you're noticing. Right, because you if you're living 432,000 years, 26,000 years is not even like, you're not even two or Dude, three. Yeah, exactly, you know what I mean? Like that's you, it, yes. You've already seen two cycles of time happen here on Earth. Yep. Before you're even, you know, out of yep. kindergarten. 
Exactly. So that shit's wobbling off its fucking chops. You can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's constantly moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Sumerian story of creation begins at a far earlier time than the Christian version, though the two stories do eventually overlap. The Sumerian version, however, begins with the actual creation of the solar system. The second stage of creation then proceeds with an enormous cosmic collision. According to the tale, a huge rogue planet named as Nibiru that was not originally part of our planetary system became drawn into the gravitational pull of our outer planets. Eventually, the sun began an enormously vast elliptical and permanent orbit. The texts say that Nibiru's orbit is in fact so eccentric and elliptical that during its perihelion, it crosses the paths of all the other planets except the innermost four, making its closest pass precisely where we now find the asteroid belt. They also tell us that the orbit of this rogue planet was contrary to the paths of the other planets of the system, causing it to travel around the sun in the opposite direction to them. It was during its entry to our solar system and on the second subsequent orbit while making close orbital passes of the inner planets that two enormous celestial disasters occurred. Yeah, there there we have a little description of how it all happened. So how does it how does it get through the asteroid belt to skim up against it? That's what I want to know. Well, if you, it's got to pass through it on two occasions. If you look at that elliptical orbit, it's got to enter, use the gravitational pull of the asteroid belt, and skim around it. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. It's got to pass through it and then pass out of it. And how does it do that without being hit by massive rocks? And if that happened, we'd see it. Yeah. Theoretically. Theoretically. Mm. Well, that's not to scale either. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Maxi boy. Um, I think we've got a couple of sentences to go, I'm mate. Just, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm just getting I'm just getting lost in this diagram just for a moment. Because, I mean, I'm... how far is the elliptical, right? I mean, if you think about where Voyager 1 and 2 are right now, mm-hmm. they're in the void, right? They're past. Out here somewhere. They're out there. Some, they're way past there now. Like yep. Voyager One's like somewhere out there somewhere. And didn't didn't we just kick? Didn't something on Voyager like something corrupted and they contacted? Because there's like two computers mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievably, Voyager One and Two were transmitting signals, but I think Voyager One is now lost as it gets closer to Nibiru. Well, I was just I was just about to say. What if we, what if we were able to? The reason we were able to contact contact it was because we bounced a signal off of fucking Nibiru's towers. Yeah, they're five G, and we got they're five G, <laughs> and we got a signal over there. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's why we got it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly, all right, we've got. Right, well, oh, look done, at that! Two it. paragraphs, we're and we're done for the night, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's wrap this sucker up. As you read this account. I'm about to relate to you. As bizarre as it sounds, I ask you to consider deeply what you know of science, not a lot, and astronomy, not a lot, and also of mythology, a little bit, 
and biblical tales. And again, remember that the following tale is not from someone's imagination. We get it, Max. But is in fact an accurate, though paraphrased, translation compiled from an account of our beginnings that was written by the Sumerians 6,000 years ago and saved on tens of thousands of clay tablets that have been found in Mesopotamia in the last 150 years. The information their fragments and pieces contain have been collected painstakingly reassembled and meticulously researched by Zachariah Sitchin, the world-leading authority on Sumerian texts. See, there's some people in Melbourne that would argue against that because they're the ones that translated the Pythagorean, uh, well, the geometry tablet. But see, I don't know. Do all these guys that translate the Sumerian tablets... Are they using Zachariah's template or are they using their own template? Like you said, where's your 50 years? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you did one tablet? Yeah. That's cool, bro. Yeah. (laughs) Cool story, man. Needs more dragons. (laughs) All right. Last one. Here we go. Wrapping it up. Now with all of the above in mind, according to the 6,000-year-old Sumerian account, the actual creation of the solar system, including the creation of of Hemad Bracelet and the Earth, and ultimately of man, the calendar, civilization, and pretty well the whole shebangabang went like this. Cliffhanger. And until <laughs> next episode, you will get in the beginning. In the beginning. I'm really curious, man, as to where he's going to go with this. And obviously, he's a he's a Sitchin fan. Look, I think we all fucking know where he's going with this because yeah, yeah, we yeah. seem to be popping up two paragraphs yeah. ahead of him discussing it. And yeah. then he goes exactly where we yeah, do. Yeah, like, yeah. I think, I think a lot of us are all on the same page mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, he's just, he's just what I feel like what this is, is just this book is it's, it's our thoughts. Yeah. Our theories. Isn't it crazy? All put into one neatly packaged. Yeah. Argument and see, we and, like, and what we've got to remember, sure, we've been in EFS for a long time now, right? But it's going on nearly well, you know, it's 10 months, nearly a year now that we've 15 episodes, right? So, we didn't know of Max Egan prior to this, and all these things that he's bringing together, we either researched individually or together over thousands of hours over the past five years mm-hmm. or five and a half years now. Yep. And he's, you know what I mean? And he's talking to us from a, a PDF downloaded book from 2006. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's man. trippy. Like it, it, it's, he keeps saying, he keeps saying like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I wrote a book on it. Yeah. <laughs> years ago. Years ago. <laughs> I, oh, I, you started a cute little podcast five years yeah, ago? 16 years ago, yeah, I, I wrote, wrote a book, book on it. I wrote a book ago. and I left it and didn't Quite charge anybody for it. Existing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I just left this downloaded God. book on the internet for anyone to have. Man. Mad dog. Thank and you, thank, Maxi boy. And thanks, Grub. That was good. I think Grub, that was good. Thanks for coming in. And I think we, I think, we got to refine the process. I think it was very process. positive. Mm. We learned a couple of things along the way. Mm. So we're going to come back next time bigger and better mm. and grubbier. Yeah, and, grow. <laughs> and he sent it an appreciation too, by the way, while we were talking. Of course so. he did. He's Grub's a fucking legend. On you, mate. Thanks, man. Another fun one. Thanks, man. Until um, next time. In this life and the next. Stay safe. Cheers. Peace.
Do you want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you been here before. No surprises settle the score. I know the darkness deep inside. Reckless rage, poison pride. I know the anger. I know the through I know you I know you wow Yeah.